The epistle of 1 John has garnered our attention in this season of our church life. 1 John chapter 2, today we zero in on verses 20 to 27 of this chapter. Being real Christians in an unreal world. That really is the umbrella title that we have given to our study series because that more or less summarizes the heart and soul of this little letter. Being real lovers of the Lord Jesus in a world that does not love Jesus very much. A world where being a Christian can mean little more than being an American or being a Cubs fan or being a Cleveland Indian fan. Now, if you're a Cubs fan, things are getting a little grim, aren't they? (laughs) We need to pray harder for the Cubs if that's the place you land. The Apostle John, the last living disciple of Jesus' original 12 disciples, writes this letter to a number of late first century churches that have just experienced the departure of many of their friends and families from the church. The people have left the church. They left because some captivating and charismatic false teachers had infiltrated the church and proclaimed that there was a new and better way to reach God and to realize eternal life. A better way than to believe that God sent his son Jesus, who is God, into the world to die for sinners, who was buried and and rose from the dead and purchased forgiveness and gave us eternal life and made possible a personal relationship with the one true God. These false teachers were saying, no, there is a a new and better way to gain God and to reach heaven. There is a secret knowledge which we possess that we would like to share with you that will lead you to true spiritual enlightenment. And one of the best parts of this new enlightenment was that you could live however you wanted to live and it would be okay with God. You could just... Sent up a storm and it really didn't matter. And so it was a very appealing false teaching. Jesus isn't necessary. And so so many in the church were considering this new teaching and they were being drawn away from Jesus. As we might imagine, this exodus of once professing Jesus followers left those who remained in the church rather confused. These people left. I mean, why why did they leave? What what does that mean? Is their teaching right? Uh, Are they Christians? Are we Christians? How do we know? All these questions just kind of uh, rifling through the life of the church. And so John writes this little letter to true Christians laying out for them uh, how they can tell the real from the unreal. John says, in effect, it is not hard To do this, you can always tell the real from the unreal or the phony in three ways by what a person uh, believes, by how they behave, and by how they love. And we've talked about this um, several times in the course of our series already. And John has already taken us into these three, uh, we could call them proving ground areas, if you will up to this point in our study series, and he just kind of cycles through these throughout the five chapters of First John. Today, he steps back into what real Christians believe, into that arena as we take up verses 20 to 27 of chapter 2. Now, I'm not going to kid you, this is a, this is a fairly challenging section of First John. We're going to read it in just a second, but know that the language is a little bit hard to follow and it's a little bit hard to teach, but we don't duck the hard passages here, right? 
at Idlewild Bible Church. It's the Bible. And so we're going to we're going to move through this. We're going to trust the Holy Spirit to be faithful, to bring out to our understanding those things that he has written and wants us to know. But it really is a challenging passage to help. Let's read the last three words of verse 27 out loud together. That'll help get us kind of moving. What are the last three words of verse 27? Abide in him. Abide in him. That is the theme of these verses. It's repeated over and over. Abide in him. This passage is all about how we do that and why some people don't do that. I'm going to start at verse 18 just to get a running start into verses 20 and following. So at verse 18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so many Antichrists have already come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, he's just shared with us that a number of people have left the church. That's what he's saying. They were never part of us. And they have left us. Verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all you. You all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the father and the son. No one who denies the son has the father. Whoever confesses the son has the father also let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the son and in the father. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. I told you it was a little bit confusing, a little bit uh, kind of intricate. and Maybe it feels like uh, you kind of ricochet around in these verses. But if we are careful, these verses really boil down to a call to remain faithful, to abide in the one true gospel, the gospel, who Jesus is and what he has done appropriated into my life by grace through faith. That is a definition of the gospel. These verses are all about a call to do that. And that call is so desperately needed in our day, the call to abide. All one has to do is look across the pond to Europe and see what happens when we don't abide in the gospel. At one time, Europe was alive with Jesus' gospel. And the Great Reformation shaped Western civilization. Today, though, churches are empty in Europe. Less than 5% of the European population is Christian. And we ask, what happened? Well, Although we may not know all the details, one thing we do know for sure is that there was no abiding. 
Or look at churches in our own time, in our own culture, that at one time were flourishing and Jesus was proclaimed and people were being reached for Christ's sake. Now today they are a shadow of their former selves, many of them. I can still in my mind's eye remember a a red brick church building built kind of in the southern style with the steeple and two white pillars and steps that went up to the front door. You can kind of picture this in your mind up to the entrance. Lisa and I had happened onto this church building quite by accident upon a visit to the Tucson area a number of years ago. Only now it was no longer a church. It was a bar. And we, it was in the middle of the day, and so we, we were just intrigued enough to stop the car and get out and look and see what, what and we could look through the windows, and we could look all the way down through the doors into the, into the full sanctuary, and at the end, up where the, the, the podium and the platform and the choir used to sit, there was this long bar with all these bottles of alcohol, and where all the pews were, now there were chairs and tables. Why? Why? Well, I'm sure there would be many reasons, but one reason for sure, no abiding. Or think of homes and families that at one time were spiritually alive and and, and there were parents' prayers that were heard in that home and and Bibles were open and children sang Sunday school songs and, and all of life centered around Jesus and the church. And now, perhaps a generation or two, maybe three, separated from that, there is no faith associated with that family name anymore. Again, I don't want to oversimplify this because there can be many contributing factors, but one thing that we would know for sure is that within that family there was what? No abiding. John has one word for all of this. Abide. Abide. It's used five times in this section. Six, if you count uh, continued, the word continued in verse 19. Six times. Abide. Now, to borrow uh, an analogy that I think most of us can relate to to some degree, to abide means to take up a permanent address or settle into a permanent home. That's what it means to abide. It means to put down roots. It means committing to buy a particular house and I'm going to call it my home. It's yours. It's your dwelling place. It's your address. It's where you live. It's where you do life. You're staying put. You are abiding. You are not a renter. You follow? That's what it means to abide. Now, we have probably all rented at some time in our life, right? Unless you're, you're still in high school yet and you haven't left home. You, you've been a renter, right? We've all been renters. And back when you were single and you were just starting out, man, that was a great way to go. Renting would work. All you needed was a roof and a microwave and you could do life, right? And you could do it really well. And when you're renting, there's really no long-term commitment that goes with that. I'm here until I feel like moving on or maybe a better place. uh, I can get a better place for my money or, or whatever. We all know that with renting, there is always, though, going to be a sense of impermanence. And it's why newly married couples oftentimes dream of buying their very first home 
even if it's a worn out fixer upper because they're married now. And so they'll scrimp and they'll save and they budget because they want to sink down roots and they want to have a place of permanence. They want to abide. Some of us are renting right now, perhaps. Uh, and, and there's nothing wrong with renting if all we're talking about is a physical home uh, to live in. But if we apply this analogy to spiritual truths and to matters of faith in Jesus and his gospel, then being a renter is not a good thing. It's a very bad thing. To John's way of thinking, renting would be the very opposite of abiding. To abide means that I bought the house and it's my home and I am not moving. I am not looking for something else. I'm not looking to go somewhere else. Non-abiding is all about short-term renters who are here until something better comes along. And then I'm gone. In this perhaps less than clear passage, John is really commending his Christian readers for having become permanent residence in a house called faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They weren't gospel renters, in other words, who simply occupied a house for a little while and then moved on when something more compelling or more intriguing or was more tantalizingly packaged comes along and they say, I'm out of here. So in this passage, the Holy Spirit wants us to answer the question, am I abiding or not? Am I a renter or am I a permanent resident? You, you follow the thinking? Yeah. So let's consider the non-abiding side of this first. The, the gospel renters. A moment ago, we noted that you can always tell the real Christian from the fake or the phony by what they believe, by how they behave and by how they love. Now, as we said, this section is really about the real Christian and what they believe. We can tell renters from residents by what they believe. So verse 19 again, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have what? They would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Verse 21, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. John draws this contrast between truth and lies. And when he speaks of truth, he means truth that is absolute truth. He's not simply thinking about how he feels on a particular subject. It's, it's not conclusions that he's drawn from his own personal journey in this world. He means truth that is true no matter what for all of time. It is transcendent, unchanging, fixed forever, ultimate truth because it comes from the ultimate one. And who is that? It's Jesus or God the Father. Everything that flows from God, that is transcendent truth. It's always going to be true. And anything that isn't consistent and affirming that truth is a lie. 
And anyone proclaiming something as true that is not consistent with what God has already proclaimed is a liar, right? That's what John says. Now, the one central truth upon which all, the whole of the Christian faith rises or falls is, of course, the person and work of the Lord Jesus. All major heresies in history mess with or massage or they manipulate something related to the person of Jesus Christ. To use a, a word picture, these liars move their doctrinal address away from Jesus, down the street, sometimes into a new zip code, maybe sometimes to a new continent. In your, on your note page, John Calvin, a key player in the Protestant Reformation that rescued the church from a corrupt Catholic church that was filled with lies at the time, he writes back in the middle 1500s, we now see that Christ is denied whenever the things that belong to him are taken from him. And that's what the false teachers were doing in John's day. It's what false teachers do in our day. They take things away from Jesus. And as Christ is the end of the law and the fulfillment of the gospel and has within himself all the treasures of wisdom and understanding, so also he is the mark at which all heretics aim and direct their arrows. We would agree with that, right? He's the target. Jesus is going to be the target. Therefore, the Apostle John has good reason to make those who fight against Christ the leading liars. Since the full truth is exhibited to us in him. What had these false teachers taught? Well, verse 22 told us. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Gospel renters say, Jesus is the Christ. Oh, oh wait a minute. No, he's not. That's what a gospel renter says. Jesus is the Christ. Oh, oh, no, he's not. How they got there, we're not entirely sure how the false teachers of the day got to this place. But they had denied Jesus as the Christ of God, the Messiah, the promised deliverer, the redeemer of sinners. Jesus is not the one from God. These false teachers were persuasive as is often the case with false teachers, because they're energized oftentimes by demonic forces in the spiritual realm. So they're very persuasive. They attractively package the message. Persuasive enough in this case to draw some in the church away from even one such as John. The Apostle John, the last living eyewitness disciple of Jesus. And these false teachers are drawing people away from this pastor who loves them and has told them about Jesus. And so John says in verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying, underline that or circle it, present tense, still trying, they are trying to deceive you. We might think, who would follow such rubbish? Who, who, would, who, would, who would ever deny Jesus once they've been exposed to his truth? Who would ever do that? Well, brothers and sisters, dear old Peter, the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, is, is really the only reminder that we need 
to, to know that we should never say never, that we would never deny Jesus. Even he did that in a dark moment. Down through history, millions of sincere souls have, have done just that, denied Jesus. Although they didn't think that they were doing so at the time, they, they thought they were right on. And you and I must realize that this is always a threat, living in the world that we live in. False teaching isn't typically going to be a bold-faced heresy. It's going to be some kind of a subtle uh, counterfeit. Just like a counterfeit bill uh, is only very slightly different from a real bill, so too counterfeit teaching is just a tiny little tweak sometimes from what is true. And, but it becomes very false. Here are some examples of historical counterfeits that have kind of moved through uh, the church over time. Adoptionism. Doubt you'd ever heard of adoptionism perhaps as a, as a way of, of thinking. Uh, but it says that God gave Jesus his powers. He was just a man, but God gave him his powers and then adopted him as his son. Now, is that, a, is that true? No, that is not true. That is a lie. I and the Father are one, Jesus says in John chapter 10. Arianism. Jesus was a lesser created being. Is that true? No. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John chapter 1. Docetism. Jesus was divine, but he only seemed to be human. He wasn't human. He just seemed to be. Is that true? No. And being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, though he was God. Philippians chapter 2. Nestorianism. You ever heard of that? Probably not. Jesus was two persons, two distinct persons. Is that true? No, that's not true. If you've seen me, Jesus says, you have seen the Father. John 14, 9. Subordinationism. The Son is lesser than the Father in essence and in attributes. He's, he's not equal with. Is that true? No. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. Colossians chapter 1. Tritheism. You ever heard of that? The Trinity is really three separate gods. Is that true? No, that's not true. I and the Father are one, right? One God, three persons. John chapter 10. To all of these various isms, and there really are dozens and dozens and dozens of them, John would have added his ism, Gnosticism. Because that was the false teaching filtering through the church in that day. The denial that Jesus is the Christ. God's solution to our sin problem. That and all of these other false systems that attacked the, the transcendent truth of God had their followers. And that is proof that you can put somebody in the pulpit and they can have the right academic credentials or perhaps some kind of credibility that, 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 that gives them some, some standing in your midst or they have a clever or winsome way and, and they can subtly teach lies. And before you know it, people are saying, so-and-so said this. It must be true. 
The internet says this. It must be true, right? Wolves in sheep's clothing. False teachers never get up and say, Hi, I'm a false teacher, and I'm here to lead you to hell by distorting a biblical Christology. Right? They don't do that. Their lies are always presented persuasively and as the real truth or the new secret way or the new discovery of some kind. And well-meaning people, if not careful to push that message that they're preaching through the grid of Holy Scripture, can easily begin to nod in agreement. Before long, a sizable portion of a congregation has shown themselves not to be gospel residents, but gospel renters. And now their new rental address is a different gospel and a different Jesus, a Jesus who will not save them. John calls anyone who denies the truth about Jesus an antichrist, right? Now, we, we, we talked about this last week, antichrist. We unpacked that word, anti-against Christos, Messiah, anointed one, God's sin deliverer. Gospel renters are against Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. Oh, wait a minute. No, he's not. That's a gospel renter. An anti-Christ. Those who are real, John would say, are not renters. They do not lie about Jesus. They speak the truth about him, who he is and what he has done, the gospel. And they never leave that. They never leave Jesus. Which brings us to think about what I hope and trust is true about all of us who are here this morning. And that is that we are gospel residents, permanent residents. If you'll flip your note page over, what are gospel residents? Well, it's going to always be for them the same gospel, the same Jesus. They're always going to have the same address and it'll always be for a lifetime. You never stop being a gospel resident. Are you this morning a gospel resident? Are you? Are you? Yeah. In contrast to the unreal, gospel renters who have moved on to a false gospel, John urges his first century friends and us to be gospel residents. To abide. He urges us to stay put. Those that left the faith showed that they never really had the faith in Jesus to begin with. Again, verse 19. If they had been of us, they would have continued. They proved that they never had Jesus because they left. Real Christians persevere, we learned last week. But how do they do that? How does God keep his children abiding? How does he keep them in the faith? How do we remain gospel residents for a whole lifetime? Brothers and sisters, how do we do that? How do we abide? Well, John tells us here. First, he says we abide, we remain gospel residents because of the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives. Verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. You've been anointed and you have knowledge about Christ. Verse 27, 
But the anointing that you received from him, that is from God, from, from Jesus, abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. What John calls anointing, the Apostle Paul uh, calls by the more familiar term of the indwelling. Both words describe the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a true Christian. Do you have the Holy Spirit in your life today? You do if you know Jesus. You do if you know Jesus. Second Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. Paul says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. John and Paul are both talking about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who upon any sinner's confession of Jesus as their Savior and their Lord comes and resides in them, abides in them. This indwelling means many things. Our bodies, our physical bodies as Christians literally become houses, don't they? Houses that God lives in by His Spirit. Blows me away to think about that. But God lives in me right now. He lives in you if you know Jesus. It's where God lives. This also means that God's presence is with us wherever we go. We are never away from the presence of God throughout our entire life journey. We abide in him because he abides in us. His power is given to us to live for Jesus well. His spirit gives us gifts. And enablements, specifically so that we can help push Jesus' church forward in a sinful world. We could never abide without the Holy Spirit being in us. Is that true? Do you believe that's true? We could never do this. We could never be gospel residents, permanent residents, if the Holy Spirit wasn't permanently residing in us. John is burdened. He's determined in this passage to tell these real Christians how they can confidently be permanent residents. One way this happens is the active role of the Spirit of God. John says these brothers and sisters have all the knowledge that they need to be in a personal relationship with God forever. Verse 20, you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. You don't need to be taught something else. You have the truth. The Spirit himself within us gives us this spiritual understanding. And then John goes on so far as to say in verse 27, you don't need anybody to teach you. You don't need anybody to teach you. You don't need those false Gnostic teachers coming around and telling you that there's something more that you need to know. Now, he's not saying that you don't need to be taught. Otherwise, why would he write the letter, right? They need to be taught. What he means is that his Christian friends already know the true gospel. They already have the Holy Spirit. They don't need a new and different teaching about how to get to God. And they certainly don't need a new teaching that removes Jesus from their life. You don't need those other teachers who are, and they certainly, you don't need their teaching. John says, you already have Holy Spirit imparted truth. The Spirit within you. And what is the source of truth? What's the Word of God? 
And so the other way by which we remain gospel residents and not temporary renters is by looking to the word of God as our source of sound doctrine and gospel truth. Look at verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning do what? Abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning, God's word about Jesus, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. What these brothers and sisters who remained faithful had heard was the saving message of Jesus Christ. They'd heard the word. They'd heard the word of God. If the Holy Scripture truly abides in you, John says, you will abide in them. You will stay in the word. And if you stay faithful in your personal beliefs in the true gospel, you are a permanent resident. You abide in the Son and in the Father. Have you ever heard the expression, Christianity is creedal? Have you ever heard that expression? Christianity is creedal. If you've never heard that expression, you just heard that expression. (laughs) Christianity is creedal because the Bible is creedal. It declares propositional truth, absolute truth, doctrinal truth that it sets before the sinner and it says, this is what you must believe to be saved. True Christianity is creedal and it is also confessional. True Christians confess that they have placed their faith in the creedal truths that God in his word has declared. While there are doctrinal matters that are not essential to your salvation today. For example, where you land with respect to the operation of the sign gifts in Jesus church today. That's not going to determine where you spend your eternity, right? Where you land on that matter. Or, or, or how the chronology of the end times is going to unfold. What your convictions are about that doctrinally are not going to impact your eternity. But there are doctrines that are absolutely essential and they are non-negotiable. And they must be embraced with full convic- conviction by anyone who is a real follower of Jesus. A gospel resident. If we don't abide in those essential doctrines, if we change our address on those core doctrines, we can call ourselves Christians, but we're not Christians. On your note page, I have taken the liberty to list these for you, for me, along with a brief explanation of each of them. There are six with the support that would come from from God's word. These are the creedal truths that no Christian can set aside or walk away from and still be called a Christian. The inerrancy of Scripture. Either it's all true or what? None of it's true. None of it's worth following. If it's not all true, if it's not all true, for why would anyone entrust their eternal destiny to that which they did not fully trust as divinely authored and infallible? John affirms the doctrine of the inerrancy of the Scripture when he says in verse 24, what you have heard from the beginning, you can abide in that. You've heard the gospel. It's true. It is inerrant truth. The Trinity, one God existing eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Deny this and you're no longer speaking about the God of the Bible, right? 
Is it true? Yeah? Right? John affirms this doctrine in this passage by referring to uh, verses 20 to 27. He refers to all three members of the Trinity being actively involved in a true Christian's life. Deny the Trinity and you're not a true Christian. You're not going to be a, a gospel resident. The deity of Jesus. God in the flesh, virgin born, come into the world to reveal God and redeem sinful mankind. John affirms this doctrine of the deity of Jesus in the opening verses of chapter 1. I mean, that's where we landed when we first started this series. The atonement of Jesus. Remember that big, hairy theological word that we took up a few weeks ago? Chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Remember that word? Yeah, remember that Jesus life for the sinners life. It was the only the only price, the one and only price that would satisfy the justice of God and preserve the holiness of God. The death of Jesus for us. Jesus alone atones for sin. You got to have that or you're not a true Christian. Salvation by grace. No sinner ever plays an assisting role in their salvation. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? We come bankrupt to God, don't we? We come bankrupt to God and in faith we receive the undeserved gift of forgiveness. A grace gift. Salvation. Life eternal. Forgiveness of sin. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. John affirms this this doctrine when he says in chapter 5, Verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. We didn't earn it. He gave it to us, and this life is in his son. God gave us eternal life. And as well, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus is not a risen Savior, then you and I are still what? We're still spiritually dead today. Our sin is more powerful than Jesus. Either he is alive Or we are not alive. And John surely affirms this non-negotiable doctrine when he ends his letter in 520 with these words. He is, he is, present tense, the true God and eternal life. He's alive. As I said earlier, Christian in our culture is such a slogan, such a label that to say you're a Christian today can mean almost nothing. Right. So what do you mean when you say you're a Christian? Well, you mean these things, right? You must mean these things or you're not a Christian. Inerrancy of Scripture, the three in one God, the triune God, the God who made himself small enough to put on a human body. The atoning for my sin by God who gives life to me by, by pure grace, by no merit of my own. And rises victoriously over the sin in my life, over death, over the grave. To, to abide means that we plant our faith in the biblically sourced gospel of Jesus. And we don't go anywhere else ever. Do you get that? With me? Because that is what John is trying to say. We don't follow doctrinal fads. We aren't easy prey for the folks that knock on the door with white shirts and ties. We don't hear something new and novel and think, oh, I'm going to go there. 
Why? Because we already have the truth of God's word and we have the indwelling presence of God's spirit to keep us securely in the same address for a lifetime. He keeps us there, not by locking us up against our, our will, but by assuring us that there's no other place, no better place to be than where we are in the gospel. When you have the best, you don't, you don't need to look anymore. The word is the objective truth of God. The Holy Spirit is the power to apply the word. We remain permanent residents until the day that we see him face to face. It is not but, and is that church family not just one more great reason to praise our God? Is this not one more great reason to know with a certainty that all of our salvation is found in Jesus? Together, the Spirit of God and the Word of God keep our minds and our hearts tethered to the true gospel, and we never move. We never move. We abide. And why is all this so, so important? Well, just look at the promise that belongs to all who abide. In verse 25, to all who are permanent gospel residents, this promise, He made us, He gave us eternal life. And this is the promise that He made, eternal life. God promises abiding eternal life. And eternal life doesn't begin, brothers and sisters, on the day that we cross the river at death or when Jesus breaks through the clouds and calls us up to Him at the rapture. Eternal life begins when? It begins right now. It begins the day that you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's when you received eternal life. You are in that right now. The real difference between eternal life now and eternal life in the future when you die or when you see Jesus face to face is that all the limitations that are part of this physical world are no longer there for you. You are liberated to enjoy eternal life to its fullest degree. All the more reason not to doctrinally move across town no matter how enticing that new residence might look. Eternal life is all about those who abide. And only for those who abide. Amen? May we be gospel residents. Permanent gospel residents. Let's pray together. Well, how we thank you, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, Triune God. How we thank you for your truth today. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for residing in us and taking your word and bringing it to life for us today. Thank you for the challenge to remain faithful to you, to not, to not get caught up in all of the, the cleverly packaged deceptions that are uh, just all around us, but to remain true residents of the true gospel. How we thank you that we know the truth. And we take no credit for knowing it, for you alone by your grace have made it known to us. May we live in the truth of you, Lord Jesus. May we, may we live, may we abide in you for your glory, for the advancing cause of your church till we see you face to face.
And all God's people said, Amen and Amen.